Welcome to episode 5 of Conversations with Neighbours. My name is Huda Teyab, and in this episode we ask how larger histories of non-alignment, anti-colonial revolt and pan-Africanisms are inscribed into the landscape. Jamal Mahjoub chronicles the early years of promise heralded by Jafar Nimeri's ascent to power in Sudan. The early years held great promise. Nimeri had come, he declared, to sweep away all that had gone before. He signaled modernity and change. Revolutionary purity would purge the system of favoritism, immorality and corruption. The old guard would be replaced by new thinkers. Juhan al-Tahri questions why we date African independence to Ghana in 1957 and asks why the identities of Arab and African are often seen as mutually exclusive. Not dating independence to 1952 undercuts the whole of Africa. Basically, it means that we were not part of Bandung, that we were not part of the non-aligned movement because independence has happened post that era. How did we get there then? I think the logical questions and the implications of denying Egypt, but also the North in general, this separation harms us. With the writer Jamal Mahjoub, we travel to a house in Khartoum in the 1970s, a time of great optimism in Sudan. Jafar Nimeri, a young colonel driven by discontent and inspired by Nasser, had recently come to power via a military coup. And the country seemed destined for greatness. Rumble on the Nile by Jamal Mahjoub. The first house we lived in after moving to Khartoum had an air of danger about it. There was something there that just didn't feel right. A small rock garden by the entrance held over a dozen types of cactus, some with big flat leaves, others furry yellow spines that stuck to your fingers and were impossible to remove. We were warned not to play there for fear of scorpions. It could have been a scorpion and killed the duck we kept in the back garden. But we liked to think it had been a snake after we discovered a sloughed off skin, desiccated and translucent, on top of a dusty packing case in the disused garage. Our cat staggered in one morning, foaming at the mouth with rabies. There were dark corners in that house, which was overshadowed by the ghost of the previous occupant, a man who had managed to electrocute himself while carrying a standing lamp out onto the damp lawn one evening to read by. It was in that house, my father told me years later, that he had spent the night with some of the conspirators who were involved in trying to overthrow Nimeri in July 1971. He was close friends with several prominent members of the Communist Party back then, though he was not himself involved, which is probably why they chose to stay with him. They spent the night smoking and drinking, making phone calls and waiting. In the morning, he drove them around town in the family car to see what had happened, and soon became apparent that the coup had failed. Nimeri had managed to mount a counter-coup, and the plotters were being rounded up. Many of them were executed. Others fled the country or went into hiding. My father came home that day prepared for the worst. He wrote out forward-dated checks so that my mother would be able to survive while he was in prison. How far did he go, I wonder? Three months? Six? How long did he think he would be detained? He was out of character, reckless, 
and probably the most overtly political thing he ever did in his life. When Jaffa Nimeri first came to power, he had seemed invincible. We'd watched him, young and dynamic, on our old black-and-white Hitachi portable television, standing up in an open car, riding on the roof of a train, waving an ebony staff, clasping his hands together in fellowship. A man in constant motion, north, south, east, west, he was everywhere and nowhere at the same time. Women ululated, men sang, and everyone cheered. He was forever opening new development projects, irrigation schemes, engineering colleges, and housing complexes. We watched him leaping over bulls that were laid down in the sand before him, their throats slit in sacrifice. With the signing of the Addis Ababa Agreement of 1972, civil war in the South came to an end. Not that we had really seen much of that war. It was distant and low-key, and seemed even more remote than the Palestinian struggle. We were subjected to daily propaganda messages about that, revolutionary songs and images of Fedayeen fighters leaping over trenches, crawling under barbed wire. Palestinian women in rags came to our door asking for food. If we didn't finish our lunch, we would be reminded of the children starving in the refugee camps. The south of Sudan was a world away, inhabited by the lanky men we saw working on building sites, wearing cut-off shorts slung over bony hips. They balanced orange sand in square-sided jerry cans on their heads as they climbed the flimsy scaffolding. It hardly registered that these people might be at war with us for a reason, or for a lot of very old reasons. Nimeri himself led a charmed life. Later on, he would convince himself that this was not accidental. Once, while leading a column of tanks in the south, he climbed down from the turret to walk back to the vehicle behind him to ask for some snuff. While he was standing there, a shell landed on his tank, blowing it to pieces. He was a handsome man who wore a vague resemblance to the boxer Muhammad Ali, who was a hero all across Africa at the time, and was to meet George Foreman in Kinshasa in 1974 for the famous rumble in the jungle. Nimeri epitomized the progress of the nation. Through him we believed we were destined for greatness. In civics class at school we learned how the country was developing. There were ambitious five-year plans for this and that. We memorized figures for the amounts of fish hauled from the Nile, for how many hectares of wheat and dura and sugarcane we produced. Photographs in the textbooks revealed a country to be proud of, fields of bobbing white cotton, shiny new factories. We would feed the world, become the breadbasket of Africa. We didn't need petroleum. We had water and land enough to grow food for the entire continent. A year after he came to power, Nimeri nationalized everything in sight, beginning with the banks and foreign companies and ending with restaurants and cinemas. He overhauled the administrative system, devolving power back to the nine provinces and away from the capital, a move that would come back to haunt him years later. The Addis Ababa Treaty was the crowning achievement, bringing an end to a civil war that had been going on for 17 years since before independence. The enigma of who or what Nimeri really was still remains. When he first stepped onto the podium, he was a young colonel inspired by Nasser. Like their Egyptian counterparts, the men of the Sudanese Free Officers Movement were driven by discontent. In the south, they were fighting a war they could not win. While back in Khartoum, their leaders and politicians bickered and quarreled among themselves. The early years held great promise. Nimeri had come, he declared, to sweep away 
all that had gone before. He signaled modernity and change. Revolutionary purity would purge the system of favoritism, immorality and corruption. The old guard would be replaced by new thinkers. In those first five years, Nimeri went a long way towards setting the country on the path to achieving its potential, something we all dreamed of. The presidential palace was renamed the People's Palace. In the schoolyard, we did Chinese calisthenics, raising our arms and bending our legs in time to the commands from a military man with a microphone. The nation was energized by socialism. When visiting heads of state arrived, we were ushered out of class to stand by the roadside and cheer the presidential cortege. Nimeri came to symbolize the idea of belonging, of inclusiveness, of nationhood. How quickly the euphoria of the early years evaporated. By the late 1970s, Nimeri had begun to believe in his own myth. He claimed that Islam had always been at the core of his thinking. By then, his health had begun to deteriorate. And Islamism replaced socialism. In 1979, Hassan al-Turabi, in a move that presaged the Islamist takeover of 1989, was installed as Minister of Justice. State ownership gave way to economic liberalization. Liquid assets, shares, state land, petrol and gas were sold off. Corruption proliferated. Those closest to Nimeri profited most. The Islamic banks were brought in. The great development plans vanished in a spiraling confusion of debt and bank loans for hundreds of millions of US dollars being borrowed at extortionate rates for projects that never materialized. Refineries that were never built, cement factories that never arrived, helicopters delivered that no one had asked for. The adventure was short-lived, but still, those early years remain a reminder of what might have been. Rumble in the Nile is an extract of an essay that appears in the June 2015 issue of Chimarenga Chronic. Jamal Mahjoub writes in his conclusion that the Nimeri era remains one of the most beguiling and contradictory in the country's history. It defined so much of what was to come. The rise of Islamist politics, the loss of the South, the corruption, the cronyism. From bringing out the best in the nation, Nimeri left us with the worst. Three documentaries formed the bedrock of our conversation with the Egyptian documentary filmmaker Jahan al-Tahri, Tragedy of the Great Lakes, Cuba, an African Odyssey, and Behind the Rainbow. These collectively span over 50 years, from the killing of Patrice Lumumba in 1961 to the fraternal rivalry that tore through the fabric of the African National Congress in South Africa in the mid-2000s. Welcome, Jihan. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. The three films which form the bedrock of our conversation today, Tragedy of the Great Lakes, Cuba and African Odyssey, Behind the Rainbow, take an interest in the utopian visions of liberation movements and to a large degree, what happened to those visions. But before we get there, I'd like to begin on more personal grounds. And I wanted to ask you about your relationship with your father, in what ways, if at all, did his work shape your own vision of the world? Well, in many ways, the answer to the personal question is very connected to the actual question. 
because uh, my father in many ways um, transmitted this utopian vision. And uh, at the beginning of his professional life, he was an ambassador and he was very connected to that uh, moment of um, working with the Nasser's government to help liberation movements. He didn't actually speak to me about it until very late in life when he saw that I was very interested in that particular angle. He kind of gave me names of people I should interview. And then when I went to interview them, he said, why are you asking me? Why don't you go ask your father? And like my father, what he's, does he have to do? It's like he was completely involved in this, um, you know, because Nasser from very early on, uh, 54 onwards, was very committed to Pan-Africanism. And a lot of the help to different liberation movements, which was kind of clandestine, went through the different embassies and things like that. And so that's how he was um, connected uh, to that story. But on a personal level, my father was a very, very important um, pillar of my life because I fought against him the whole time, but he supported me on everything he disagreed with. So it was this very interesting relationship as a woman in a conservative Egyptian setting um, where we argued about everything I wanted and he disagreed with it and then went on to support me once I decided to do it anyway. I definitely think back to things he told me in terms of principle, but especially in terms of the world we're trying to construct. How do we actually add our grain of salt, even if it's just a drop in the ocean? And, um, and my engagement, I think, towards that vision of Pan-Africanism, if you want, is very connected to the idea that it's a process. What the vision of the founders was was about a better life for all. Thank you, Jihan. Um, so you're described as a documentary filmmaker, writer, and a journalist, but some would also argue that you're a historian because history and the narration of history seem central to everything that you do. And you've written elsewhere that you're not a big believer in looking at history as it is happening. This leads me to my next question. Is this what inspired your shift towards documentary filmmaking after many years of working as a journalist? I was very, very committed to journalism, but was very, very badly disappointed. And I think it was uh, the Gulf War that made me realize that as journalists, you write a first draft of history because researchers need to go back and figure out what happened at that time. And, and journalism is the first access point. And being a journalist and knowing the conditions and how things work, I was like, I do not want to be part of this. And so definitely, um, 
yes, moving away from journalism was a very important moment for me. Over the past 10 years, I've also started working uh, as a visual artist, which is another layer of how to tell things, both audio and visual and materiality. To be perfectly honest, everything I do turns around one question. I'm quite boring that way. Um, it's like I'm obsessed with this one question. And I've been trying every different way and every different format to figure it out. I guess if I ever get an answer, no one will ever hear of me again. <laughs> but uh, um, so basically, um, my, my central question is to try and figure out what happened to make that vision that all these founding fathers shared, elaborated on, really took time to think. They came up against all, uh, like they fought against the mammoth of colonialism, for God's sake. They had a whole narrative for the future. Then what happened? And I think the ability to try and figure out the process is something that I've been very keen on. And the process in the sense of also the silent spaces. We're left with archive, we're left with stories, but we're never really left with what actually happened between that big event and that big event. So if you watch my films, I try and find these turning points, turning points that try and get us to reflect on what happened before that turning point and how then things changed. Um, I wouldn't call myself a historian in the classical way because you know how uh, in the West, you need degrees and bibliographies and things like that. But I would definitely call myself a historian in the African way because I really, really go after oral history. And oral history is our tradition. I mean, look at the griots of the Mandang Empire. They have managed to transmit their story from the 13th century until today through songs. So why can't we? You don't just need some kind of a, a, a Western education where the way you write your footnotes is what makes you a historian. So um, I guess I play around with, uh, with these things, but ultimately what I'm interested in is storytelling. I need to be able to figure out the stories and put them out there. Maybe they'll circulate, maybe not now, later, but at least they exist. Thank you, Jihan. Speaking about the larger mythology of liberation on the continent, one thing you've persistently said again and again is, why is it that everyone dates African independence on the continent to 1957, Ghana, and not Egypt in 1952? It absolutely kills me. <laughs> because, I mean, like Nkrumah himself, the first thing he did, I mean, Nkrumah and, and, and Nasser were very close because Nkrumah went, I mean, even his attending the Bandung Conference in 1955 was on request of Nasser. I mean, so I think a lot has shifted since the actual days of independence 
and the immediate post-independence where there was still this collective vision. Because, I mean, up until the creation of the um, what then used to be the OAU, the idea of the organization of African unity was Nasser, Nkrumah, and Sekuturi with the help and the space of Haile Selassie. So this really was East, West, and Francophone, Anglophone, North. It was the idea of we all come together because we have this common history. So not dating independence to 1952, I think undercuts the whole of Africa because basically it means that we were not part of Bandung, that we were not part of the non-aligned movement because, you know, independence has happened post that era. How did we get there then? So I think the logical questions and the implications of denying Egypt, but also the North in general, this separation harms us. I mean, I'm not, it's not an obsession for nothing. Somehow, we have accepted as Africans that there is something called Sub-Sahara, and then there's this empty thing called the Sahara, and then there's the North, which is another ball game. But by accepting that that Sahara is an empty lot, we're denying the most profound and most important elements of our culture, because the University of Timbuktu is the oldest university in the entire whole world. The manuscripts of Timbuktu are the oldest of the world. So why would we want to deny ourselves that meeting point? That meeting point was where culture circulated, was where connections happened, was where trade, the sole trade at the time was the biggest trade. That's where it all happened. And now we think of the Sahara as this empty space below which lies an identity and above which lies another identity. Of course, there are distinctions. Within each one of our countries, there are distinctions. Thank you, Jihan. You've also spoken about the importance of the 1956 crisis in Suez in remapping the political geography of the world, that the emergence of this category, sub-Saharan Africa, which you take issue with, can be traced back to Suez. Would you mind speaking a bit about that? Absolutely. I mean, if we, if we actually start by a very simple fact, the idea of peacekeeping forces by the United Nations, where other countries send troops within sovereign countries to man your borders or to do this and that is created with the 1956 Suez crisis. That is the birth of the concept of peacekeeping forces. So that's only one example. But more importantly, I discovered this almost by accident. Uh, another element of the, the change of geography, I'll, I'll phrase it in a different way, um, I've been obsessed by the word sub-Saharan Africa because I can't find the contours of it on a map. So I've been trying to trace what the word sub-Saharan Africa is and where it is and why we as Africans have started to accept that 
word. So as I was doing my research, trying to trace just the word, and I come across this report that what happened in 1956, again a turning point, is that with the with the resignation of Anthony Eden over the Suez crisis, it became absolutely clear that it was the end of empire. So within the coming few years, uh, the empires, be it the British or the French, could no longer economically sustain colonialism. And so the spate of independences was going to happen very quickly. And obviously, after the Second World War, the big victor out of all of this was America. And America, not having been um, a colonial uh, country, had very little knowledge and very little interaction with all these spaces that, quote unquote, lay under the auspices of empire. And so they realized that with the collapse of empires, all these new countries are going to come up <laughs> and, more importantly, vote in the UN. So suddenly these, the birth of these countries was going to be really important. So they needed to figure out, hey guys, you colonial empires, British, French um, and Portuguese, who are these guys? <laughs> so they had no idea who these countries are, what languages they spoke, what cultures they were, nothing. And so basically they had this meeting and with five major foundations and wanted to start studying all these different countries based on two main factors. First factor being uh, um, American uh, foreign policy interests, and the second being the vote in the United Nations. And so the foreign policy interest was really based on, you know, what is our personal interest within that country. So, for example, they regrouped uh, what they call MENA, Middle East and North Africa, so the Middle East, for example, the concept of Middle East didn't exa exist. There used to be the, 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 the Far East and the Near East. So where did the Middle East come from? Okay, How did they combine Egypt, Turkey and Iran? It was basically based on that Middle East is for American foreign policy interests. It was vital interests. So you, vital interest was petroleum, was strategic, was anything that was vital American national interest was lumped in within that area in the Middle East. So that's how come Sudan becomes part of the Middle East, despite the fact it being way, way down in Sub-Sahara, okay? Because at the time, Sudan had something called the Gezira Project. The Gezira project was like basically the triangle of gold. It was referred to as the triangle of gold. Because it, uh, anyway, just to continue, and um, Middle East. And then you skip Libya. Libya kind of doesn't belong to either the Middle East or North Africa or the Maghreb. Because at the time, 50, 56, petroleum hadn't been discovered yet. 
It was desert, you know, Senussis were still there. Nobody gave it a second thought, or at least didn't appear to be. Then you have the Maghreb, the Maghreb which is Tunisia, Algeria, and Morocco, excluding Mauritania. Why? Because it had more to do with American relationship with the French colonizers post-independence rather than the actual countries. So they lumped these three together in terms of their relationship with, with France. And then everything else became sub-Sahara. Why sub-Sahara? Because they had one and one only foreign policy interest, which is keep the communists out. And keeping the communists out of everywhere else was like the thing. So, and I kind of stumbled or figured this out or stumbled across it or whatever, because I couldn't figure out how come Mauritania is referred to as sub-Saharan Africa, yet Sudan isn't. They're just like, there's a logic there that doesn't work. And more importantly than all of this, so I kind of call it the re-re-scramble of Africa. Because not only this, during the scramble of Africa, we kind of accepted the delimitations and the borders imposed on us and cutting tribes into two and four sometimes, and we accepted it and then adopted it and got into our own little civil wars without thinking what it is and what needs to be undone. But then this re-re-scramble of Africa, which set a new set of delimitations, weakening us even further, we're accepting it. And I speak to my African brothers and say, yeah, 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 but you're not African, you're, you're an Arab. Like, what does Arab actually mean? You know, and why is the notion of Arab as a tribe or as a grouping excluded from the African continent. It, it has a unified language, it crosses borders, and there's a people with a history, and the, it's exactly the same as the Pearl. The Pearl crossed Senegal, Mauritania, Guinea, uh, Mali. The Pearl, in, you know, crossed this entire region. Yet they speak the same language, they have a commonality. Nobody excludes the pearl from the notion of Africa. You know, why are we excluding the Arabs? This is the success of the divide and rule post-colonial policy. And all of us are jumping into it with both feet first. Then you go back to um, uh, the Arabs were the African slavers. Um, excuse me, they were working out of Zanzibar. Zanzibar is Kenya, you know? It's off the coast of Tanzania and Kenya and all of that. Uh, so even if that was the case, if we start opening these conversations, which I think we should open them, as part of restitution, as part of reparations, let's open all these boxes. Why not? Let's go and delve into them, no matter how hard it is. But let's not just take other people's frontiers, limitations and borders and accept them blindly. It's silly. Thank you, Jihan. Before we move ahead, I'd like to read something to you and invite you to respond. 
This is by the American sociologist Robin D.G. Kelly from his book Freedom Dreams, The Black Radical Imagination. In it, he writes, too often our standards for evaluating social movements pivot around whether or not they succeeded in realizing their visions, rather than on the merits or power of the visions themselves. By such a measure, virtually every radical movement failed because the basic power relations they sought to change remained pretty much intact. And yet it is precisely these alternative visions and dreams that inspire new generations to continue to struggle for change. You you give me goose pimples because um, the minute you started reading it, immediately in my head I thought of Amilcar Cabral. Amilcar Cabral, who is maybe less known than other uh, more celebrated leaders and founding fathers of independence, but Cabral had the vision, a real vision, that I think remains part of the bedrock of aspirations of new generations. I mean, how do radical movements fail? They fail by their leaders being assassinated, collaborators being inserted in their midst, all the weaknesses exploited. Of course, radical visions and radical change is not wanted by those who lose the most. I mean, look at economically. We still live in the same era of colonialism without any change on the economic structures. Look at the CFA Frank. They didn't even change its name, its acronym. It was the Colonial Frank. So CFA, Colonial Frank, and still it's the CFA and now called it communal or God knows what what. The infrastructure of economics has not shifted by giving us political independence. And I say giving not because we didn't take it. We didn't take it hard enough. Because if we had taken it hard enough, we could have taken the economic infrastructure too. But by being being given political independence and getting ourselves completely entangled in sorting out the politics, we overlook the economics, which once we've disentangled the politics, we realize that we can't go anywhere without the economics because we recreate the exact same structural inequalities that colonialism created, but now we're creating it ourselves. Not because it's us, it's because the infrastructure we did not remove systematically recreates it. Thank you again for that, Jihan. The assassination of Patrice Lumumba in 1961 sets in motion the events chronicled by the two films, Cuba and African Odyssey, and the tragedy of the Great Lakes. What I found really fascinating is that the figure of Laurent Desiree Kabila appears as a 23-year-old in the Cuba film, and he returns much older in the tragedy of the Great Lakes. May I ask you to speak a little about the great epic of Cuba and Africa, as one of the characters says, and the inter-regional collaboration of the ADFL, the Alliance of Democratic Forces for the Liberation of Congo Zahir. What did these moments represent? Well, I mean, uh, ironically, the films were done the other way around, because as I said earlier, um, I, I really, 
I really only make films because I desperately need to know. So I keep following it and trying to find local imagery, just like this hunting down these things that are not simply rereading the same narrative, the same book, the same thing. Um, is is I kind of feel like I like to unravel the the um, the thread, you know, and untie the knots that are made in the thread. And so, obviously, most of the films don't start the way they end up. Um, so the film, uh, the tragedy of the Great Lakes, was not at all about what it ended up being. Um, the the film, the tragedy of the Great Lakes, started with the genocide. I could not understand how, um, and you'll be surprised the thing that got to me, it took the United Nations 21 days to accept to call the genocide in Rwanda genocide. And I found this the most appalling moment in history. I could not understand why on earth it would take 21 days of massacres to accept to say genocide. And that was the, the path I was following. And of course, much later, we realized that they knew from the very beginning that it was, um, uh, it, was mass uh, it was a genocide. Only nobody wanted to send troops because the Americans had just been humiliated in Somalia and didn't want anybody to send troops. So that's how the tragedy of the Great Lakes started. But as I started filming and tracking people down, I suddenly realized that, not realized even, um, a whole other movement of this shift of the narrative from Rwanda to the Congo was happening. And I was kind of moving with that flow. So in the tragedy of the Great Lakes, you'll find footage, for example, of this movement of the Hutu army towards uh, Goma. That's something we filmed with Kappa that I was working with at the time. So as you know, when you're right in the middle of filming things and history happening, you don't have the distance to step out and look what was this actually about? And what is it connected to beyond what I'm seeing? And that's why I don't like to tell history as it's happening. Because you don't actually see, you have your blinders on based on what it is that's happening just in front of your nose. And so as I continued research for a second year, a third year, then I started to try and understand, well, okay, the narrative has shifted from Rwanda to the Congo. And that's when this whole movement of the ADF fell was started and the, and the, 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 the march down from Uvira was happening, which we also filmed. But obviously at the time, you don't know that that's what's happening. When, when, when Kabila gives his uh, press conference in Kisingani, you don't know that that's what's happened. It's just a press conference by a guy who all these minor people want him to sign contracts. So it isn't until I filmed even after the Utenica and all of that, which I didn't film myself, the Utenica, but, but I was obviously following the story. Um, you kind of sit with all this material and try to figure out what on earth is this about?
And who are these people? And once you kind of lay out the pieces of the puzzle, you end up with the questions. And for me, one of the questions is, who's Kabila? And, and where did they get him from? And why him? And that's when I go back and reconnect and find Kabarebe and find Davisengwa and find all these people. And as for Cuba's African Odyssey, I started from a completely different angle, but it's not ironic. I mean, for me, Cuba's African Odyssey was about proxy wars. It was about the East-West conflict because everything I read, everything I saw, every book I had, every article talked about the Cold War and Africa being the stage of the Cold War. And I just wanted to understand, like, what, did we not have any initiative at all? Like, was there a bit of initiative there? And it was based on a little trigger that then you unravel a different story. But I think the obstacles and the hindrances to get you to ask the right questions are there. Like, if there isn't a single article, a single book, that gives you a hint of something different. How do you get to ask a different question? You only need that tiny little niggly bit that you don't understand to get you to set you on a different path. So I guess I've been lucky to find these false notes that allow me to say, hold on a minute, what did that mean? And then follow it. But sometimes you follow paths for a year, two, three years, and then you end up with no answers. So I just got lucky a couple of times. Thank you for that, Jihan. My last question relates to the South African film, Behind the Rainbow, and it also connects to the uprisings in Tunisia, Egypt, and elsewhere in 2011. You'd said elsewhere that those uprisings represented the close of a chapter, that the post-colonial state had destroyed itself. Yes. In closing, may I ask you to reflect on that? You know, I didn't realize that my films were connected. I really resist making a film because I know the minute I start, my life is entering a vortex for the next four or five years. And so I do everything within my capacity to say, okay, okay, let me forget it. I'm not going to make a film. I just need the answer to this. And then I get sucked in. And so every film imposes itself on me because I cannot stop the search for a specific answer to a specific something. And next thing you know, it's constructing itself. So I never actually saw the connection between the films until someone interviewed me after the Egypt's Modern Pharaohs. And they say, so now you've ended the trilogy and of course, Egypt's Modern Pharaohs is a trilogy. I said, yeah. And they said, no. So why, why did you end a trilogy within a trilogy? And I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and they said, well, uh, the tragedy of the Great Lakes, uh, the Cuban film and the Egypt film are a trilogy. And the last one is a trilogy of itself. And I'm like, I never saw these as a trilogy. But when I started thinking of it, that's why I say it, it worked the other way around. Cuba is about that moment of 
thinking of independence and finding a process to attain independence and the moment of independence and its outcome. South Africa is about that moment of transition. And the tragedy of Great Lakes is about once the transition has failed, this little parenthesis of a moment of restructuring what hadn't worked during the transition period. And Egypt is about the clarity of the failure of the infrastructure of the nation state to give its populations what colonialism took away from them. It's the perpetuation of the system. Thank you, Jihan. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Bongani. You know what? Going back to my father, uh, when I used to get really frustrated, um, like, you know, what's all this about? Like, I've worked, I did, there's never... And he says, you know what? If you know that all your hard work made one other person rethink and search for an answer, then you've done your job. So thank you, Bongani. Johanna Tahri has made numerous other films. Her documentaries all turn over a single question, what happened? Egypt's Modern Pharaohs is her most recent film. Thank you for listening. We will return in the new year with more conversations with musicians, writers, architects, artists and theorists from across the continent and beyond. We ask what lines of flight might reveal of our shared planetary futures. We ponder on how the global Swahili worlds might reframe our thinking of connections across waters. And we trace the afterlives of the trans-Saharan trade routes of the 8th century. Archive of Forgetfulness project is co-curated by Huda Tayob and Bongani Kona and is made possible with the support of the Goethe Institute. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram for updates. <laughs>